The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to uh, pick up our text in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We'll read through the passage here, and then I'll kind of give you some file folders for thoughts so that you can um, track with me in, in my thinking through this passage. Beginning in verse 1, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, as we come to your word, I recognize for many who've been in church for a long time, that this story is familiar. It's one that we've heard since we were little. And yet I pray, God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes to see it again, to soak from it the eternal and unchanging truth of your word. In order, God, that we might be shaped as disciples and grow in Christ-likeness. And for those who maybe are unfamiliar, God, would you give them an ear for your voice, a heart to hear and understand, and the wisdom to know what to do with what we learn today. So God, be glorified in all that takes place. In the name of Jesus, amen. For those of you who are note-takers, there are three sort of major headings that we're going to file all of our thoughts in today. Verses 1 and 2, parents and their children. Verses 1 and 2, parents and their children. And then verses 4 through 14, we're going to take a look at Cain and his decline. That's Cain and his decline, verses 4 through 14. And then lastly, verses 15 and 16, we will land on and fixate on God and his mercy. 
God and his mercy in verses 15 through 16. As we're tracking with the story of Adam and Eve, we left off with them being driven from the Garden of Eden by God. Having received both discipline for their sin and simultaneously a gracious covering for their nakedness, Adam and Eve are forced to leave their garden home. Now placed at the passageway of the garden are cherubim, these angelic guardians, and this rotating flaming sword that's supposed to discourage them from trying to come back in. These were there to keep Adam and Eve from entering the garden and eating from the tree of life. And as Pastor Paul taught us last week, God did not want Adam and Eve to live forever in their fallen and sinful condition. So he guards them from eating from the tree of life. Now, though they're forced from the garden and now destined to a life of painful labor, of relational difficulty and spiritual warfare, Adam and Eve do not seem to go far from the garden. There are hints in our text that when Cain and Abel brought their first fruit offerings to the Lord, that they were bringing them before the Lord's presence at the entrance to the garden, before the cherubim and before the flaming sword. Notice that there was, there was no sanctuary for them to come to. There was no temple, no tabernacle, and so this worship is spontaneously offered, but offered to the Lord in that place. Now, reinforcing uh, this idea is that um, is the notion that the worship that took place at the garden. Uh, was the place where they sat before the face of God. And you'll notice back in our text in verse 14, when, when Cain is being driven away from his residence with his family, he says there, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. The idea being that here in this place, I, I was able to come before your face, come before your presence, and now he is driven away uh, from the presence of the Lord. The idea seems to be here that though we know that God is omnipresent, there was a location on the earth where Cain could be before the face of God. And this would have made a lot of sense to the Israelites. In fact, these Hebrews that are being given this story by Moses would understand that their entire worship regimen was a mimic of of this reality of coming before the presence of God and the cherubim and so their entire worship structure that they participated in mimicked this reality in the tabernacle and it is outside of the garden that Adam and Eve begin the work of tilling the soil of starting their family it's here where they would watch their boys grow up and they would teach them how to worship the Lord and what it means to follow him. And it is also here where they will discover that that sin that they committed in the garden, it affects their children as well. It's here where they would, they would see that their sin had grave, grave consequences. It was indeed no small sin at all. In verses 1 and 2, we read about Adam and Eve. Now, Adam knew his wife in the biblical sense, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. We're going to think for a moment about parents and their children. In the first two verses of our text today, we're invited to look at the reaction of Eve to having children. We're invited to see through her, her eyes the birth of their son. And, and when she gives birth, she makes this statement. She says here, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's likely that Adam and Eve 
we're waiting for the promise found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, just the chapter before. This promise of the coming seed, the deliverer, the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be wounded. And so, with the arrival of their firstborns, in their minds, it is a fulfillment of what God has promised. As such, as parents, a lot of their hopes rest upon the birth of Cain and of Abel. Now, some commentators feel that Cain and Abel were twins based upon their names. They see this story as a setup for a later recurring theme that comes up in the book of Genesis, where the older brother doesn't value the gift that he's been given and the position of privilege that he's been given. And so the blessing, the birthright, is passed off to the younger. And and some commentators believe that this is a setup for that thematic element that carries out through the book of Genesis. Because this theme is repeated throughout the book. Now regardless of that, we are inclined to ask at this moment a, a simple question. If Adam and Eve believed that the birth of their son was the fulfillment of God's plan to deliver them, then what did Adam and Eve believe that they were being delivered from? If all of their hopes are sort of resting upon the birth of these, these kids, what is it that they are hoping is going to happen? What did they think that their child would save them from? There are three things to take note of here. Three things Adam and Eve hope to be saved from. First of all, their past failures. Second of all, their present suffering. And thirdly, their future death. Their past failures, the present suffering, and their future death. Zeroing in on their past failures, if Cain is the head-crushing child that God promised, then it means that their shame that they carry over, over their past will now be lifted. His success will become their success. If he turns out good, maybe it will, it will make up in some small way for all of the bad that they've done for all of the sins of their past. Not only that, but they think that he'll save them from their present suffering. If if Cain is the serpent-conquering child that God has promised, then Adam and Eve may be let back in the garden. They may eat again, once again, from the, the tree of life. The cursed ground will become blessed, and the relational tension that they've been experiencing together will be healed This will be the success that brings them together, that that finally unites them and untangles the sins that they've committed. It will heal their present suffering. Not only that, but they anticipate that that child, the promised seed, will deliver them from future death. If Cain is the promised seed who crushes the head of the serpent, then their story will not end finally in death. His success will in some way give their life meaning. Though they've blown it, though they've failed, through his success, now they sort of live successfully on, if you will. Their lives at least produce the deliverer. In other words, Adam and Eve had very high expectations for their kids. There was a lot riding on the promise that the seed would be this deliverer that God had promised would come. In their minds, the past, present, and future hopes of their entire existence were now resting on how their kids turned out. And so, they did the work. They taught them early how to worship They instructed them on on how to approach God. Cain and Abel do not come to this idea of sacrifice and offering to the Lord in a vacuum. This isn't spontaneous. They were instructed in that by Adam and by Eve. 
No doubt Adam felt inspiration to work. To work the ground that resisted him so fervently. For if he could just produce enough to keep his family alive and and raise his kids long enough, finally their success would be his success. All he had to do was just bury himself in tilling the ground and working the soil and help them to get along just a little bit farther than he had. And no doubt Eve thought, well, if I, if I just nurture them enough, then, then I'll see this redemption come to pass. I'll see the promise of God fulfilled. And as Eve held her baby, she must have thought in her mind that she was in fact holding the Messiah. But in actuality, as she held Cain, she was holding a murderer. What a painful realization for Adam and Eve. You think about that. Every parent feels this way. When your baby's first born, you're like, oh, look at them. They can't do anything wrong. And when they poop in a diaper, you're like, oh, did you make a poopy? Oh, you're so cute. You're such a good pooper. But if they're still pooping their pants at 14, it's a problem. We all have high hopes for our kids. Adam and Eve were no different than us. They, they thought, man, if, if I could just make my kids a success, it'll, it'll bring meaning, it'll import success to my life. This is, this is the key that unlocks everything that's broken in my world. I just want them to do better than me. What was true for Adam and Eve is still true for us today. Kids are terrible redeemers. They just are. She and her husband came into my office. Now, the tears were forming even before they sat down. The husband was keeping his composure, but the wife was already beginning to sort of fall apart. They sat and shared with me their story. She came from uh, a family with tremendous complexity. Her father was emotionally unavailable. Her mother was loving, but she was also deeply wounded in her own ways. And as a result, much of her childhood was spent trying to get attention that she craved. And she did it in ways that weren't healthy. Desperate to find love, her teenage years were just an absolute train wreck. She thought that she could find love through her sin. And there was plenty of sin. There was, there was drug use, abusive relationships, and all of it left a huge mark on her soul. Her and her husband met in her early 20s after she'd come to know the Lord, and and it was the first time that she'd really ever experienced a stable relationship and genuine love. And determined to undo her past transgressions, she she worked twice as hard to become this sort of perfect wife and perfect mom. It's what she thought she needed to be, and And when their first child was born, all that she could think about was was how much hope there was. Hope that her child would not grow up with the same needs, in the same dysfunction. And so they they worked hard. They they, they did family devotions in the evening when they from the time that their son was little. They they read from little children's devotions a children's Bible or devotional, and they prayed with their kids at meal times and any other time that they could find an excuse or a reason to do so. And early on, they spent, spent virtually every night going into their child's room, praying over them and reading the Word and talking about Bible stories. Eventually, other siblings entered the picture and 
their family expanded. And the husband, he actually took on a second job to, to help put their kids into a Christian school because they thought, man, we just we want our kids to do so well. And what was really driving this need behind her was, was, was the background of her past. And she just thought, man, if I could just give my kids every opportunity and, and they can be successful, my heart will be healed. So the father, who was a quiet man, but, but present, attended games, was a part of everything that was happening. He delighted in the successes of their son. He took on extra work. And, and though this was a huge financial stretch for them, together they had decided that all of these sacrifices were worth it. If it just provided those opportunities for their kids, this, this is worth it. If we have to suffer to make life better for our kids, it, it's going to be worth it. It'll be okay in the end. But now, the reason they were in my office, their 17-year-old son was rebelling. He'd snuck out of the house several times. They'd caught him with pornography. And to top it all off, there was evidence that he was smoking weed, partying with his friends, the girlfriend that he had was unhealthy. She was a train wreck as well. And after all their attention, all their sacrifice, all the countless nights of prayers and family devotions, their, their son was struggling and failing at life. His grades were falling. Sin was rampant. And I knew what they were hoping. I knew that they were hoping that they could come in to Pastor Jeremy's office, and he, like some sort of oracle, would declare to them the will of God over their lives, that somehow he would impart to them some measure of wisdom that would somehow unravel what was wrong, that, that maybe Pastor Jeremy would become their son's best friend, that he would make their son, his, his special project, that, that he would go and, and, and meet with them and talk with them and spend hours upon hours and, and fix his life, that maybe somehow Pastor Jeremy had all of the answers. But I didn't. I didn't have the answers. And so... I simply asked a question. I asked them both, what does it mean for you if your son doesn't come around? What if he doesn't get his life straightened out? Is his success what gives your life meaning? Immediately, the wife just broke down in sobs. She confessed in that moment, I, I would feel like I was a complete Failure. So we spent the next moments talking about the reality that our kids are terrible redeemers. Though we have so many hopes for their future, they're not what determines our success. They're not what determines how faithful we've been. And even more so, when we place pressure on them to be that for us, we make things worse. Because our success is intertwined with their performance. The pressure is crushing. Save me from me. And so we continued to talk, and I reminded them that God, in fact, is a perfect father. And he gave to Adam and Eve everything that they needed to succeed. But did they fail? Yeah. And was that God's fault? Nope. They had a part to play. They had a choice to make. And I reminded them that Jesus is the only son who takes shame away. Jesus is the only one who can remove our shame. He alone is qualified to do that. And I reminded them that Jesus is the only one who could save their son from his sin. They can't do it. The wise oracle, Pastor Jeremy, cannot do it. Only Jesus can do that. 
It's their job to love him, to pray for him, to point him to Jesus. And it is his job to respond to their love and to the love of Jesus. And then we close our time by praying for their son. You see, this is the reality. Adam and Eve, just like us, have no control over what the sinful hearts of our kids will choose to do. Now, does that mean we, we, we just don't do the work? No, we do the work. We're like farmers in the hearts of our kids, casting as many seeds as we possibly can into the soil of their hearts. We do the work. There, there's no doubt about that. We plant seeds in their hearts, but then we pray to God that he will make them grow. Our only hope as parents is that we have a good God who will pursue them in the same way that he pursued us. Adam and Eve needed a good God who would pursue their son. And that's what we see happening here in our passage. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to the Lord. We pick up the story now in verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. We're, we're going to take a look here at Cain's decline. And as the life of Cain and Abel is summarized for us in this passage, Moses really narrows our focus to one particular series of events in their lives. It surrounds the way that Cain relates to the Lord in worship. And what happens when he fails to yield to conviction from the Lord? And so under Cain and his decline, if you're taking notes, there's really five things I want you to, to take a look at. And they follow through our verses in the text. First of all, we'll look at his worship. Second, his heart. Third, his sin. Fourth, his lie. And fifth, his consequence. His worship, his heart, his sin, his lie, and his consequence. So looking at Cain and his worship under the heading of Cain and his decline. The first stop in the story is focused on the offering that Cain and Abel brought to the Lord. Time passes and the two boys grow up to take on different responsibilities. The Bible points to this shift of time by simply saying in the course of time, in verse 3. Now, Cain and Abel had both grown up, having been instructed about how to approach the Lord in worship. And by this time, Adam and Eve have, have given them the pattern for worship where they could show appreciation to God for the crops, for the livestock that have grown and increased through time. Now, this skill for farming and, and for raising livestock and this pattern for worship was likely given to Adam and Eve by God. This is what he taught them in the Garden of Eden. Now, historically, some have taught that the reason that Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's was accepted was because Abel brought a blood sacrifice as opposed to the fruit of the ground brought by Cain. However, this isn't what seems to be happening here in the text. When you look at it a little bit more closely, the Hebrew words for blood sacrifice are never used. In fact, when in verse 4, uh, it says that it was the firstborn of Abel's flock, the same, off, the same phrasing is used of free will offerings, and it, this sacrifice is also called an offering in verse 3. So free will offerings were appreciation and worship offerings. They were just, you know, coming to God and just saying to him, God, you're so good. Look at what you've done for me. I just love you so much. It was a, an act of free will worship. 
And so they bring these offerings to the Lord. And those could be either animal sacrifice or they could be produce. They could be things that were produced from farming. Either one of those could be offered as a free will offering. So it's not an issue of blood sacrifice. But really, it's a way of their sacrifice or their offering is an expression of thanks to God. Now, having said that, I want you to notice and really key in here on the way that Moses precisely phrases God's response in this passage. He says, beginning uh, halfway through verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel, and then notice what comes second, and his offering. But for Cain, and then here it is again, And his offering, he had no regard. God seems to be here in this passage responding to the worshiper more than the offering. The rejection and acceptance of the worship had nothing to do with the quality of the sacrifice. And it had everything to do with the heart of the worshiper. Something is off in Cain's heart. Now we're not told exactly what it is. Perhaps it was that he was not truly thankful. He was just sort of performing a duty or perhaps he gave to God begrudgingly. He's like, all right, here's your stuff, right? Maybe he was caving in to pressure from his parents to look good before God. Or perhaps Cain reasoned that a sacrifice was a way of indebting God. Like, okay, I give to you and you give to me. That's how this works. I'm purchasing an IOU from you by my worship or by my offering. Perhaps it had no real meaning at all. He was just going through the motions. Whatever the reason is, we're not told what that is, God rejects his offering as a way of showing Cain That there's something wrong in his heart. He's trying to wake Cain up. Cain, the way that you're coming to me is not good. This is actually poison for your soul. And, And I need to show you that in some way. If I just accept this offering, you will live that way perpetually. Something is off in Cain's heart and God wants him to know it. Now, the importance of the heart of the worshiper is a pronounced theme throughout the Bible. It is constantly being talked about in the ministry of Jesus, in the writers of the New Testament. But probably the clearest place that God describes the meaning of worship is found in Isaiah chapter 1. I'll just read this to you from Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, just quick pause there. When the prophet calls these, this group, Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking to God's people, right? He's saying this to Israelites. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, God says, my soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, a posture of worship, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The same prophet Isaiah would say later in Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Because this people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their heart is far from me. And their their fear of me 
is a commandment taught by men. In other words, they're just going through the motions. It's just a law. It's just a rule to follow. Their heart is not engaged in worshiping me whatsoever. See, here's the deal. God accepts worship that comes from an authentic and real heart. I mean, it could be as simple as a widow's last two pennies dropped in the temple tithe box. Or it could be as extravagant of a gesture as a sacrifice of a bull every six steps like David in 2 Samuel 5.13. You see, for God, the heart of the worshiper matters more than the sacrifice. Worship is quantified in a silent moment of genuine, God-focused awe. It's seen in a, in a tear-filled eye where a voice can't even be lifted. It's a cup of cold water given to a child. It's a visit to the sick or to the imprisoned. You see, for God, it is the heart that makes the sacrifice sweet. It's the heart that makes the sacrifice sweet. But instead of receiving correction, Cain's heart in this story becomes angry and bitter. And as a result, Cain's countenance falls. He felt ashamed. He felt angry. He felt bitter and depressed over it. There are hints in the passage that that Cain sort of feels entitled, that, that God has to show him acceptance, that God owed him acceptance in some way. Now, curious, how do you think God should respond to Cain? How does God respond to this attitude? Well, we have it here in our text. God responds by pursuing Cain. And we pick up their dialogue in verses 5 through 7 as we look at Cain and his heart. Cain and his heart. In verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So God makes this distinction. Cain, there's something wrong with your worship. Cain gets angry. His face falls. He gets depressed over it, angry and bitter. Then verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here, we see God arguing with Cain about his attitude. God tells Cain, well, what, are you, what are you so angry about? Like if, you, if you get your heart right, won't your sacrifice be accepted? I want to accept your sacrifice. I did this for your benefit, not mine. If you do well, you know I will accept your worship. That's the implication. God was not angry with Cain. He just wanted what was real from Cain. And then God warns him. He, he tells him, listen, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Now, Sam, in our sermon prep, uh, in, in the group that we have for sermon development, uh, he made this really great point this last week. He, he said, you know, a, a predator, say a lion or a cougar or something, crouches and makes themselves low to diminish their presence, to make themselves look smaller, to fit in with the horizon and not make themselves stand out as being ominous or imposing. They decrease their profile before they attack in order to minimize the appearance of how dangerous they actually are. And this is the picture that God gives us of sin. He says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching right now. It's stalking you. And you think it's not that big of a deal. You think it's small. It's, it's there in the shadows. It's not that big of a deal. But it is going to pounce on you and have its way with you. You think your attitude is not a big deal, Cain, but if, if you don't correct what's going on in your heart, it's going to take you out. This anger and bitterness is going to devour you. It is stalking you even now. 
And then God tells Cain what he needs to do. He says, but you must master it. It's worth noting, as we're thinking through this, that all of this happens between God and Cain. Cain is a a faithful worshiper of God. God is conversational with Cain. God shows care and affection towards Cain. God doesn't want Cain to fail. In other words, Cain is not a pagan, unbelieving heathen. This angry heart and this flawed worship is something that is not just for people outside of the church. It's something that can happen to people who know God. You see, here's the deal. You cannot be neutral towards sin. Either you are ruling over sin in your life or it is ruling over you. And Paul echoes this statement in the New Testament for us. Perhaps you'll remember that passage from Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He says this, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Here's the deal. What you yield to, you become a slave to. That's what Paul is saying. What you yield to, you become a slave to. And God tells Cain, as he tells us in the New Testament, fight your sins. Fight them. Resist. In the words of John Piper, I love this phrase, he says, make war against sin. Make war against it. You say, but Jeremy, how do I do that? How do I, how do I make war against sin? It's not super complicated. It's found, first of all, in daily surrender. It's found when you bring yourself into God's presence at the very start of your day and you just go, God, this day is about to begin and I know that I can drive it in the ditch at any moment. So I'm tuning my heart to listen to your voice. I'm tuning my ear to, to hear you. And, and when you bring conviction, when you, when you speak into my life, when you highlight something that's out of place, I'm going to respond to it. It's that surrender of the heart. It's also by the retraining of your minds. Daily surrender, retraining your minds. Romans 12 tells us that that we're to be transformed in our minds. We're to be renewed in our minds. That as we learn about the way that God sees the world, it begins to wash over us and we begin to think about life from a different perspective. From God's perspective, our will becomes aligned with his will through growing in our understanding, having our minds trained by the word of God. Romans 8 tells us if we will say yes to the Holy Spirit, we will in effect be saying no to the flesh. That's not complicated. A lot of people think that the battle of sin is found in saying no to a lot of things. No to this and no to that. And no, like the just say no campaign was adopted by Christianity and it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? But that's not the emphasis in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the emphasis in the Bible is say yes to better things. Yes to greater things. Say yes to the Holy Spirit. Say yes to peace. Say yes to reconciliation. Say yes to forgiveness. Say yes to life. God is saying, just say yes to me. When you sense my Holy Spirit working, say yes to me. And if you will keep saying yes to me, you will keep saying no to sin and to your flesh. You'll notice at this point how sin is escalating throughout the Bible. It started out with just a piece of fruit in the garden. Doesn't seem like a huge deal, but there's consequence. 
But now, as the rest of our story unfolds, we will see Cain murder his brother. He will lie to God's face. In, in the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve were confronted, Aaron pointed this out in our sermon development, that God comes to Adam and Eve and, and, and confronts them. They don't lie. They, they're just like, okay, here's what happened. And they just are honest with the Lord. But here in our passage, we're going to see Cain lie to God. The, the sin is just growing exponentially. And God is saying to Cain, make war against sin because it is coming for you. It's stalking you even now. So let's look more closely at what happens next as we consider Cain and his sin. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when, they were, uh, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now immediately after his conversation with God, the story takes a major turn. Cain spoke with his brother, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, as Cain told his brother to come out into the field. This makes this moment here a premeditated murder. Cain brought Abel out into the field so as to be in a remote place. And then Cain took out his anger and frustration, took out his rage upon his brother, and he killed him. You know, this is always the way it is with sin. What happens in the heart gets leaked through the attitudes and the actions. I would imagine that Cain somehow thought that maybe he would get relief if he just could vent his frustration, if he could just vent his anger, and, and maybe if, if Abel is removed, that somehow he can alleviate this growing monster inside of him. But instead, his shame and regret was compounded by his sin. Instead of being broken by his sin, he hardens himself even more, and the cycle is just going to continue in Cain's life Unless God intervenes, and that's exactly what happens. God intervenes. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What does God do? How does God respond to this horrific scene? He comes and finds Cain in the same way that he found Adam and Eve. Instead of being armed with a sword, he is armed with questions meant to get Cain to confess his sin. But Cain is not broken yet. He's still resistant to the conviction of the Lord. And so God does what Cain is unable to do. He says, where is your brother? Cain's words are cold and sharp. Cain's words are a lie to cover his horrific sin. I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And God brings the confrontation. He he puts in words, says to Cain what Cain is unable or unwilling to confront. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know, there's something powerful about naming our sin. I've heard a ton of teachings on spiritual disciplines and practices, spiritual formation. But I've never really heard a detailed teaching on the power of confession as a discipline in life. I I think it's partly because we we push back as Protestants against sort of Catholic ideas and this idea of confession. But confession is such a wonderful tool given by God for self-confrontation. It's what he uses in Genesis. It's what he uses here. And and, and the sort of daily coming to the Lord and and saying, God, I, I, I sense even now as I examine my heart that I've resisted you in this way or I've rebelled in this way. And God, would you forgive me? Would you change me? That's a purifying thing. That, that happens in the life of a believer. It's one of God's greatest gifts in our lives as believers. Those moments where God calls us on something sinful and we are able to respond in repentance. So God confronts Cain and his lie. Now we look at Cain and his consequence. God then moves right to the consequences of Cain's sin in verses 10 through 14. God's judgment of Cain's sin flows in two stages. You're you're cursed from the ground. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. And, number two, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. As a a result of his sin, uh, Cain will be cursed from being a farmer or tiller of the soil any longer. The land would no longer cooperate with someone who has shed blood on it. And this is really a double curse. Remember, God had already cursed the ground so that it would bring up briars and thorns and thistles with Adam. But now he's saying, for you, Cain, not only is it going to bring up briars and thistles and thorns, but it won't produce fruit. It's going to be fruitless. 
This sets up a later theme in the Bible that's kind of taught throughout the entire Old Testament where the land can become polluted by the sins of its people. The land itself becomes polluted. In addition, God sends Cain away from the community of his family and likely from the closeness of the garden. We read in verses 14, uh, excuse me, in verses 10 through 14, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And then Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now commentators here split into two camps. Some set the response of Cain as a sort of whiny bitterness. Others see his response as one of total brokenness and repentance. And their arguments really hang on the translation of verse 13. Some take Cain's statements here, my punishment is more than I can bear, uh, to mean, God, you're, you're too harsh. Woe is me. Others take it to being, my, my guilt is too great to bear. And you'll notice if you have an ESV translation, there's a footnote that it can be translated that my my guilt is too great to bear. The Hebrew phrasing allows for either translation. I tend to agree with the latter interpretation because it seems to align with the mercy that God displays in the coming verses. It seems from the context here that God fulfills his word by giving grace to the humble. As Cain humbles himself, God gives him mercy. Now Cain becomes concerned that he'll become a target of retaliation. And we're not told who it is that Cain's afraid of. At this point, the world's population is pretty small. Assuming that Adam and Eve have other children, uh, everyone would have known what Cain had done to his brother Abel. And if nothing else, the fear of retaliation from even just his parents was, was overwhelming and likely enough to cause him to feel hunted and afraid. And notice now how God responds to Cain's fear. He responds in such a merciful way. He responds by showing Cain mercy, putting a mark upon him and protecting him. Verse 14. Uh, Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I want to talk to you about the mercy of God, but I, I just have to mention something very fast. And many of you have been following the news about Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is a famous Christian apologist and preacher, world-renowned. And um, about two years ago, there were some signs that he was not being completely honest. And uh, it was revealed that he had lied about some education accreditation and... Uh, there was an accusation that he had been sending inappropriate text messages to a married woman. Um, he denied those allegations, settled something out of court with the woman who had accused him, and uh, that was all covered up. But then uh, Ravi Zacharias in International Ministries hired a, an outsourced firm to do an investigation into his conduct. Recently, the report came out that he had a wide and terrible sin that it w was, was just horrific on all levels, on all accounts. He'd sexually manipulated women using spiritual and financial control methods. He used ministry funds to finance his sinfulness. And all the while, he justified it by saying that he needed relief from the pressures of such a demanding ministry. A man who was once beloved who was greatly used by God, one of the most influential Christian thinkers, was ensnared in sin so dangerous that the scriptures warn us in 1 Corinthians that such that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to, by all outward appearances, he died in unrepentance, still covering his sin. Here's what I want you to see. Somewhere in the heart of Ravi, and somewhere in the heart of Cain in our passage, they refuse to be honest with themselves before God. It started with their worship. 
It's, it started somewhere along the way. Ravi made a compromise. And that compromise was, was maybe started out with just a look. Or maybe it just started out with an attitude of the heart. Or taking pleasure in something that he shouldn't have taken pleasure in. But it worked its way out from the heart. He was not honest between him and God. And it worked its way out in his life. In the same way that it did in Cain. God called Cain on it early. And because it was unaddressed, he murdered his brother. This is why sins of the heart, this is why worship is such a big deal to God. What is happening in the heart matters to God because it makes a difference for your life. What is small becomes big. What starts out as an attitude of the heart gets lived out in the life. Sin is never a sudden event. It is a pattern that starts with our worship and moves to the heart. It is manifested in our attitudes. It is lived out in the actions. Sin is a cancer of the soul. But, in this story, though there's high human drama, humans are not the stars of the show. God is. As we close out our time in this passage, I want you to see the mercy of God towards the most heinous of sins. It ends with God putting a mark on Cain and declaring that if anyone kills Cain, vengeance is to be taken out on them sevenfold. And God protects Cain. Can you believe that? God protects him. I mean, this is the first human death. It is, it's the first time that the consequence of sin is clearly seen in a dead body on the ground. This is the first death that occurs. And yet, God shows mercy. Really, in our passage, did you see it? God was showing mercy all along. God exposed the fact that Cain's heart was wrong in worship. God was there warning Cain in his sin. Don't do this. Sin's going to capture you. It's crouching even now. It's going to take you out. Can, God exposes Cain's sin for what it is. When Cain finally sins, God comes to him and says, where's Abel? Where's your brother? Your, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. God brings it to the forefront so that Cain can be confronted with his absolute sinfulness. And then God disciplines Cain's horrendous sin. curses him to be a wanderer, tells him that the land will be fruitless. And yet at the same time, God protects him from retaliation. What does this mean for us as we close our time here? Our worship matters. Our worship or our lack of it gets revealed in our actions. Sin is crouching. Today, listen, today, if you hear the voice of God calling you to repentance, don't. Harden your heart. Today, if there's something that you need to repent of, and and even at this moment, something is coming to your mind, it's undealt with, and the Holy Spirit is bringing that to the surface, don't walk out of here having not dealt with it. It's time to get your heart right, because sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to to have you. But you have to rule over it. God gives grace to the humble. And if you're feeling conviction over sin, that's evidence that now is the time to heed it. And if you're not feeling conviction, if there's, there's sin in your life, and actually, I, I don't really care about it. It doesn't bother me at all. You're in an even worse place right now. You're in an even more dangerous place. And God is here even now through these words and through this passage calling you like he called to Cain. And calling you unto himself. God is there with us. Arguing against our sinful hearts. He is there calling us back in his mercy. He is warning us. And if we sin. If we failed. God's not finished with us. He made a way of forgiveness. Through the payment made on our behalf. On the cross of Jesus. He gives grace to the humble. Bring your heart, even if you failed, bring your heart to the Lord and let him cleanse you. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. What a powerful passage to bring to the forefront of our minds how important it is for our hearts to be surrendered to you. 
that worship is about our life. It's about the way that we live in your presence. So God, with a heart of honesty, as we close out with a final song here, with a heart of honesty, may we bring ourselves before you. May we call upon you to examine our hearts that you might be glorified in our lives. In the name and for the glory of Jesus, amen. Thank you.